A reading from Job. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man. I will question you, and you shall declare to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the heavenly beings shouted for joy? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds so that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings so that they may go and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who has the wisdom to number the clouds? Or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clods cling together? Can you hunt the prey for the lion? or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their covert? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God and wander about for lack of food? The word of the Lord. A reading from the letter to the Hebrews. Every high priest chosen from among mortals is put in charge of things pertaining to God on their behalf to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is subject to weakness. And because of this, he must offer sacrifice for his own sins as well as for those of the people. And one does not presume to take this honor but takes it only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself in becoming a high priest, but was appointed by the one who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and having been made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Having been designated by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, Hear what the Spirit is saying to God's people. 
Thanks be to God. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. He said to them, What is it you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They replied, We are able. Then Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called them and said to them, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. The Gospel of the Lord. Our very rich selection of readings this Sunday opens with God at last, at long last, speaking in the ancient book of Job, a wisdom text that goes back to at least the 6th century B.C., written, interestingly enough, not about an Israelite, but a foreigner who yet was devoted to the God of the Israelites. And if any of you remember the story, you will recount that it opens in the heavenly court where Satan, who is just part of the heavenly court, he's kind of a heavenly prosecutor, if you will, enters a gambit with God about Job because Job is so righteous. And Satan says to God, you know, skin for skin. The only reason he's righteous is because you have blessed him with so much. And so the gambit is, what will happen if everything Job has is taken away from him? Will he remain righteous or not? It is an ancient context and an ancient story, so no one bothers to send a memo to Job. And so in a calamity worthy of the silver screen... 
Job loses everything, his family, his possessions, his belongings, his wealth, his animals, his creatures, his health, and he ends up sitting basically in the gutter in sackcloth and ashes with sores on his skin, but he refuses to besmirch God. Now, if that isn't bad enough, three of Job's friends come along, and they are the sort of friends you might have where you'd say with friends like this, who needs enemies? Because they know how the divine world is supposed to work. Job must have done something to deserve this. And just to add insult to injury, Job's wife comes along. She's had it. And she says to him, just curse God and die. Be done with it. I'm done with it. You should be too. Right? Job is steadfast in his own honor, his own sense of righteousness. And so begins this long poem, this long dialogue between him and his friends who might as well be his enemies. It goes on for chapter after chapter after chapter. Job insists on his righteousness and his place. All the while he is asking in the language of the ancient world, why is it that we suffer? And most particularly, why is it that we suffer often, often unjustly? Now, Job never really sins, you might say. But if he makes a mistake, he invites, there's more colorful language for this, but it's a Sunday morning, he invites a machismo contest with God. He wants to confront God face-to-face, and make his case. And God is implacably silent for chapter after chapter after chapter. Finally, his three friends, thanks be to God, give up and go silent. And at last, a young man, Elihu, steps forward. Again, It's a machismo world, and so he has been appropriately silent while his elders engage Job. But at last, he says, I have to say something now. And he begins this long glorification of God and begins to drop hints for the ages that perhaps Job's suffering is not about Job's righteousness or lack of saying but is, like the rest of the content of life, an opportunity for God to show who God truly is. And it is with that introduction that at last God speaks, beginning with today's passage. And God goes on for several chapters extolling the magnificence of the creation that God has made, God does not once address Job's fundamental concern. He points out in this way that this is actually not about Job, that there is something much greater afoot. 
And Job, at last, having recognized that to get into a machismo contest with God is to get in a contest that you're going to lose, acknowledges his own humility before the God of the universe. And God reckons that to him, you might say, as righteousness. And then he scolds Job's friends. He tells them to make sacrifice and asks Job to make it on their behalf. And then he restores everything back to Job twofold. It's a lovely story, but it is profound for both us and our Jewish brothers and sisters. It sits at the heart of that fundamental existential question that we all have, so much so that oftentimes when I am in counsel with people who are suffering great things, we talk about the witness of Job in the ancient tradition. Job is not actually a historical figure. Job is our voice in our suffering. The struggle to reconcile an unjust life with a just God. And very wisely, the ancient writers of this text don't quite resolve it for us, but instead offer us perspective on our own suffering. Because the greatest temptation, of course, when we are suffering is that our suffering is the whole universe. And of course, it is not. And in some ways, oddly enough, that can be comforting to recognize that something always greater is at work. And God is still there. And as the text points out, God does answer our cries. Some of our early Christian brothers and sisters would reinterpret the book of Job as a progenitor, if you will, of the Christian story because Job's suffering they liken to Jesus' suffering in righteousness. And of course, to tie it in with our letter to the Hebrews today, Job becomes, in a way, a priest on behalf of his most unworthy friends who are still tangled up in the language of transaction, which we're all familiar with. Because if we are truly honest with ourselves, we know we always have this game going on with God. That if I just behave the right way, God will give me blessings. Right? Do you play that game? I do all the time. I do all the time. And it is hard work to overcome it. The gift, of course, is that we are reminded in the book of Job and by the natural world that there is much more going on in God's creativity than me. And I don't know if you heard it, but I did, as Scott read that beautiful passage of God speaking, the raven called, just as we heard about feeding the ravens. Did you have anything to do with that? Me neither. It's a reminder that even as we are gathered here together in worship, 
God is much greater than these walls and even the fullest content of our lives. Now, Scripture was written in a patriarchal world, which means machismo is everywhere you look, and it's very clear in today's Gospel reading, if you have eyes to see it. Jesus has selected his 12 closest followers from amongst the crowds who trace him. And of course, the moment he does that, he has elevated them in their own eyes, and their lives, they think, are probably worth something more than those of Jesus' other followers. So immediately, as it would in the ancient Mediterranean world, there begins a competition, a pecking order. And the reason that the ten are so upset with James and John is not because they are upset out of righteousness. It's because they've been playing this game too, and James and John have tipped their hand. They all want to be counted amongst the first to be seated at Jesus' right hand and left hand. And so Jesus turns to them and says, you really don't get it, do you? And the correct answer to that is, no, we don't. Because we are so often playing these games with one another and with our God. But if we take this passage in the greater context of the Gospels, we see just how radically subversive it is. Because Jesus is pointing out that the kingdom that he has come to plant has nothing to do with games of machismo or power or climbing, but in fact of radical self-offering, of moving into the position of the servant, and even, he says so radically in his context, the slave to give ourselves over to one another. A kingdom that is not built on power or lordship. As he says, that's what the Gentiles, the outsiders do. How well we know it. So well that we swim in that water all the time. But if we listen closely to what we do together as a worshiping community on Sunday mornings and whenever we pray and the language of the teachings that our Savior has given us. It is not a language about power. As a matter of fact, it is the language of radical subversion. We are to subvert the games of power. Jesus, most of all, because as Mark and the other authors of the Gospels will tell us, Jesus does not ascend to a throne, but to a cross. And on his right hand and his left hand are not two of his righteous followers, but two bandits. Two outcasts. And as he says elsewhere, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. If that scrambles your brain cells a little bit, you are listening. It's meant to. It's meant to turn our world upside down 
and give it a good shake. It is that way of subversion that is the deep message of divine love for us. God is not interested in our power games. And in fact, some ancient interpreters turned the whole story of Job upside down in the same way. The fascinating thing about Job is in the Tanakh, the Jewish order of their scriptures, this is the last time God speaks directly to any human being. So some interpreters say that in a way, Job shames God into silence. Think about that. A God of creation who points out that our suffering is happening in a much greater context and yet is willing to be shamed into silence. To be so sensitive to our plight that God is willing to be subverted by it. And in fact, that is the story of what we call the Incarnation. Jesus does not come as a powerful ruler, an almighty king, a great president, but rather a peasant, a servant, one who suffers with and among us, and sometimes even at our own hand. My brothers and sisters, if you take anything away from this day, as you come forward and you receive the broken bread and the common cup, remember you are being subverted. The power that you think you have is being undermined. Because as one New Testament scholar puts it, the kingdom is about one thing, fundamentally, and that is to supplant the love of power with the power of love. Thank you for listening to this sermon podcast from the Episcopal Church of Our Savior, Mill Valley, California. We are a growing community welcoming those seeking to deepen their relationship with God and to journey in faith with God's people through the breaking of bread and in service to others in Christ's name. You may reach us by phone at 415-388-1907, search for us online, or visit our website at OurSaviorMillValley.org. We wish you God's peace. We hope to greet you in person very soon.